And now, Father, we come to begin at the very beginning of this great gospel of John. Today, verses 1 through 3, oh, Father, how we have looked forward to the beginning of this study, of this preeminent of gospels. And Lord, we ask that you would give us eyes to see and hearts that are eager to understand what the Spirit says to his church and what you, O Lord Jesus, are calling unbelievers, religious unbelievers perhaps, to repent and find their true life in Christ, not in obedience to the law. Father, we give you praise for this hour, and we ask that you would be magnified and praised and worshipped because of what you accomplish in our hearts here. Make us more like Christ, Father. Help us know him better, for this is eternal life, to know the one true God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. Help us to know him today, Father, for we pray it in the name of our precious Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen and amen. Today, we start John chapter 1. John chapter 1. And brothers, if you could make sure this piano mic is turned off, that would be great. John chapter 1. Let's stand together and we will read this text, verses 1 through 18, because this is the prologue to John's gospel. Follow along with me now. John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and apart from him nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness does not, did not comprehend it. There came a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. There was the true light, which coming into the world enlightens every man. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as did receive him, to them he gave the right to become children of God even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified about him and cried out, saying, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me has a rank higher than I, for he existed before me. For of his fullness we have all received, and grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God at any time, but the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. Let him who has ears to hear, hear the word of the Spirit for his church today. You can be seated. Beloved, as Christians, we rest an awful lot upon the Lord Jesus Christ. 
If we are consistent with what we say we believe, our lives revolve around him. He is the center of our universe. All of our hopes, all of our confidence in the day of trouble is in him. Our purpose for living is bound up in him, as is our ultimate joy and meaning and our final salvation. All we have is Christ. And he is all we need. For us, everything hangs on Jesus Christ. The question I have for you this morning, however, is, who do you believe Jesus is? Who do you believe Jesus is? Was he just a man with a lot of really neat ideas? Was he a brilliant teacher whose influence mirrors that of other great men in history? Was he a prophet? Was he a liar? Was he a lunatic? Or was he, and is he, exactly who he claimed to be? None other, none other than the very Son of God. And so as we begin our study of the Gospel of John, we need to understand that John is very clear about his purpose for writing the book. In fact, as we saw last week in the next to last chapter of the Gospel of John, John actually does something unusual among biblical writers, and that is he gives us a very, very clear purpose statement, a thesis, as it were. Because in John 20, verse 31, he says, these things have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. It's John's purpose. Interpretation? He wants us to believe that Jesus is God. If we don't understand that, then the content and the structure of this book doesn't make any sense. They don't make any sense. But there is no ambiguity here. The Apostle John knew Jesus. So turn with me. Let me show you this. Uh, it really doesn't need to be demonstrated, but this is such a clear passage. Turn with me to 1 John. It's the epistle of John. 1 John as our English brothers would say. 1 John, come on, let me hear those pages. Let's turn to 1 John. I want you to see this. Don't trust me. Look at the text. Look at what the Bible says. James chapter 1. I'm sorry, not James chapter 1. 1 John chapter 1. I'm telling you to get to the right place, and I missed it by about three books. 1 John chapter 1, and here's what John the Apostle says. What he's speaking of Christ here. What was from the beginning? Does it sound familiar? In the beginning. What was from the beginning? What we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. And the life was manifest, and we have seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was manifest to us. What we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. These things we write so that your joy may be complete. What's John saying? John's saying, I'm not telling you this as a good student of books. I'm not a researcher. I was there. I was there. 
I sat with him. I walked with him. I touched him. I reclined beside him at at many, many meals together. I was rebuked by him. I saw the many miracles that he did, and they were unmistakable. And after all of that, there's only one conclusion. Who is Jesus? (laughs) It's an easy question. He is God. He is God. And so it should be no surprise for us to discover that what John says at the conclusion of his book relative to writing it so that you would believe or keep on believing that Jesus is the Son of God would be reflected here at the very beginning of his gospel. Chapter 1, verse 1. Now, verses 1 through 18 of this chapter are commonly known as the prologue of John. You say, well, that's boring. Tell me something else. Well, let's just hold on here for a second because it's an interesting observation because none of the other Gospels have a prologue. Matthew and Luke start with the birth of Christ. Mark starts with him being baptized and then launching into ministry. All three of the synoptic Gospels start with some point of the narrative, just pick up in the middle of the narrative, and they they run all the way to the end. Not so with the Gospel of John. John starts off with this 18-verse prologue. It's kind of an introduction to his book. There are things that he says here that set up the context for the rest of his book. And if we miss it, then we might miss the whole point of this gospel. And so... What is John trying to do? What is John trying to do? I would suggest to you that what John is trying to do is he's beginning his gospel by making a case for Jesus' identity. He's trying to show us Jesus' ultimate credentials. He's answering the question, who is Jesus? And why should you care? Who is Jesus? In the prologue here, John answers some of the the, the initial questions that we ask of people whenever we meet them, wherever we are. You meet someone, what are the questions that you ask? You say, hi, how are you? I'm Pastor Dan. What's your name? If you're talking to a man, you're going to say, what do you do? And you're probably going to ask, where are you from? And that's exactly what John does in his prologue. He tells us some things about Jesus. What is his name? What does he do, and where is he from? We understand that, we get the rest of the book. If we don't pick pick up on that here, then it's just kind of strung together narratives and discourses, and we don't see any structure, any any purpose to it all, except that it's a, a lot of cool stuff about Jesus. This first question, I would submit to you, is most important for us, at least for this morning, Because the first question that John answers is, what's his name? What's Jesus' name? Well, obviously it's Jesus. Well, that's true. Jesus, Yeshua, Jehovah saves. That was his name in the flesh. But how should we know him? What shall we call him? This is important for us because, again, John has a purpose. You need to understand who he really is before we tell you about him. And so let's, let's think about the names of Jesus. 
What is the most prominent name for Jesus in the New Testament? I mean, besides Jesus. And the most prominent name for him would be Christ. I mean, he is called Jesus Christ again and again and again and again and again, all the way throughout the New Testament. And maybe this doesn't need to be said or anything, but I'm going to say it just to be sure. You know that Christ is not Jesus' last name, right? Jesus Christ. It's not like Dan Kirk. Christ is not his last name, as if his father's name was Christ and his father's name was Christ, etc., etc. Rather, Christ is his title. Christ means the anointed one. It means the Messiah, And so anywhere we find Jesus Christ, we need to understand that what the author is trying to do is pointing to the reality that this person named Jesus, and there were many named Jesus in his day, this person named Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament promise of the Christ. He is Jesus Christ. He is the Messiah. The second most frequently used name for Jesus is Lord Lord, Lord Jesus Christ. So he's got, a, he's got three names now. Lord Jesus Christ, Lord. Um, do you realize that the earliest Christian creed only consisted of three words? Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. That's why the Romans hated them. They would not accept um, Herod or... Nero or anyone as their sovereign. Christ was their sovereign. To them, Jesus is Lord. And yes, they were called to submit to governing authorities, but ultimately, Jesus is Lord. And then there's another name for Jesus that was Jesus' favorite name for himself. And we talked about this a little bit last week, but it bears mentioning one more time so you know. And that is... Son of man. He loved to refer to himself as son of man. And you read the commentaries and a lot of, a lot of popular Christian literature and you'll hear them say, this was Jesus' name of humility. This was Jesus humbling himself. He's, he's just a, a man. He's God, yes, but he referred to himself as the son of man in, because he humbled himself like Philippians 2 says he did. Well, That is true. Jesus humbled himself. That great kenosis passage in Philippians 2, all of that is true, but that's not what Son of Man is about. Not at all. Son of Man comes from Daniel chapter 7. Remember last week we talked about this, where in Daniel 7 we have that account in a dream of Daniel, or in a vision that Daniel is granted, that the Ancient of Days, who is God the Father, calls to him God the Son, who is named Son of Man. He calls to him the Son of Man, and he is presented before the throne of the Ancient of Days, God the Father, and God the Father bestows on him all of the nations, authority over all of the nations, peoples, languages, everything, so that all of the nations would serve him. And so when Jesus referred to himself as son of man, he was not saying, see how humble I am. To the contrary, he was saying, I am your king. A little bit different, isn't it? I am your Lord. I am your God. Now, 
There's one more name, and it's the important one we want to talk about this morning, because, um, because it tells us something about Jesus explicitly, at least to the original readers, that the other names don't quite get at as explicitly. And it's rarely used, but it is the name that John uses for Jesus here. And so at the beginning of John's gospel, he introduces Jesus by a different and unique name, and here's what he says. John 1, verse 1. Are you looking at it? In the beginning was the Word. In the beginning was the Word, and in the, in the Greek, it is logos. It's actually logos, but we're all used to saying logos, so we'll just keep that. Logos. In the beginning was the logos, the word. It occurs here in verse 1, and then again in verse 14. A couple other places too, but verse 14 is critical when we get there. You'll see it. Verse 14 says this about the logos. And the word became what? Flesh. This is radical. We're going to see that a little bit today and more in the next couple of weeks as we look at this passage. The Word became flesh and pitched his tent among us. He lived with us. That's exactly what John was saying in 1 John. But why is Jesus called the Word? Why is he called the Word? And why does John keep using that, that term, the Word, and What's the significance of that name, the word? We, we usually don't think of Jesus. When we speak of Jesus, we don't typically speak of him as the word. And so why does John? Well, to answer that question, we need to ask ourselves some questions. And the primary question we need to ask ourselves is this. What would that term have communicated to the original readers of the Gospel of John? We're going to talk about groups this morning. The first group I want to talk about are the Jewish readers. They maybe had not, were not the first ones to read the book, but all of the earliest Christians were Jewish people. The church was originally completely Jewish. And so as the gospel spread, more and more Jews came to know Christ. By this time, however, the apostles were likely all dead, with the exception of John. He was the last of the twelve but nevertheless, there would have been many Jewish readers of this gospel. And so we need to ask ourselves, what, where would the Jewish mind have gone upon reading this first verse for the first time? In the beginning was the word. And what, do you, what do you think? Where does your mind go? And when you see that first phrase, in the beginning, where do you go? Genesis chapter 1, absolutely. The Hebrew mind would have gone ex exactly to Genesis chapter 1. There are echoes of Genesis all through this text. And John, I believe, intends that. It's the very first phrase of his book, in the beginning. And, and I suggest to you that John had to be thinking about Genesis chapter 1 when he wrote John chapter 1. The author of Genesis said, in the beginning... 
God created the heavens and the earth. And by the way, Hebrews 1 that we read a few minutes ago, same thing, just flip there one more time. Hebrews 1, so we got Genesis 1, John 1, Hebrews 1. And here's what the author of Hebrews wrote. Very first words out of his mouth. God, and, and you have to ask ourselves when we're reading this, he's talking about Jesus. What is he wanting to get here about Jesus? What is he wanting, to under, wanting us to understand about Jesus? God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days he has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he made the world, through whom God made the world. Sound like Genesis? In the beginning, this Son was there, this Son of God, through whom God made the world. I'm telling you, all of the biblical authors understood this. All the New Testament authors understood this. And this is what John is getting at. But the question is, why, why the word? Why the logos? Why use that term? Well, in order to get there, we need to, under, we need to think about how, how was it that God created the world? How did God create all that exists? And the answer is, God spoke. God spoke. You read Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3, and here's what you find. This phrase repeated again and again. And then God said, and then God said, and then God said, and the first time he said it, it reads like this. And then God said, let there be light. And guess what? Light appeared. Before there was even a sun, light appeared. Based on what? Based on the word of God. God speaks and things happen. You know, God is so unlike me. I'll see my kids, you know, sitting in the living room playing a game, and I'll say, hey, time to do your chores. Let's get up uh, and get going, spot cleaning, whatever, and um, like I did yesterday, and uh, you kind of keep moving. You go to the house. You go to the back of the house. You come back out, and where do you find the kids? <laughs> They're still playing the, the game. And I'm like, look, if I were God, you'd be, you'd be working now. Because when God speaks, things happen. When I speak, a lot of times nothing happens. But God's word is powerful. It's powerful. It's amazing when you, when you think about this and when you view it in the text. Whenever God speaks in the Genesis account, the result of his speaking words is power and activity, creation. You may remember through the prophet Isaiah, God said, so is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve 
the purpose for which I sent it. When I say things, stuff happens. It happens. Every time God spoke, something marvelous happened. Light, sun, moon, stars, water, birds, animals, plants, man. And then the the stars and the rest of the cosmos also, as if that were some kind of afterthought. All he did was speak. To the Jewish mind, this would have been, the Jewish mind would have been pre-primed to think of the word as something powerful and creative and active. The ancient Hebrews were almost preconditioned to receive statements like the one the author of Hebrews made in Hebrews chapter 1. When referring to Christ, he refers to him as the one through whom God spoke and created the world. It would have made sense to the Jewish mind. They understood that the word of God is an active, powerful thing. They knew in the Psalms where David said, the word of the Lord breaks the the cedars. The word of the Lord shatters the rocks. The word of the Lord causes the calf to bear, or the cow to bear calves, something like that. It's the word of God. When God speaks, things happen. So they would, have, they would have picked up on this quickly, the idea of the word. Nevertheless, we need to remember that John, when John wrote his gospel, he was not in Jerusalem, probably not on Patmos either. Depending on who you read, he either went to Patmos after he was in this place or he came to this church where he was serving after Patmos. But in either case, scholars pretty much agree that John wrote his gospel of John at Ephesus, where he had assume, assumed, assumed the pastorate of the church of Ephesus, the church that Paul started. And what do we know about Ephesus? Ephesus is about a 10-hour drive south of Istanbul today, still there. No church there, by the way. God warned Ephesus in Revelation that he would remove them, and he did. But this was not in Jerusalem. It was not in Israel. It was far, far away from Israel. This was a Gentile community. There are probably very few Jews here, comparatively speaking. And this is where John, the apostle, the Jew, was the pastor of this kind of central church in Asia. And so who would have read his gospel first? I would suggest to you that it was these Greek Gentiles And when the Greek Gentiles read this book, they wouldn't have opened it and read those first lines through the lens of religion like the Hebrews did. They would have immediately gone to their text in Genesis and elsewhere and put all the pieces together, but not the Greeks. The Greeks would have viewed these statements through the lens of philosophy because the philosophers were Greek And the philosophers had some things to say, and John knew about it. And so when we think about this, why, John, did you use this term? In the beginning was the logos. We have to understand that he was speaking in part and in large measure 
to Gentile, Greek, believers and unbelievers. So I want to suggest to you that the Greeks would not have, uh, would not have immediately interpreted this statement through religion like the Jewish people would, but through their philosophy. And James Montgomery Boyce here is really helpful on this count, and here's what he writes. This is very helpful. He writes, almost 2,600 years ago, in the 6th century BC, a philosopher by the name of Heraclitus lived in Ephesus. Well, that's interesting. This philosopher, 600 years um, before Christ was born, uh, lived in the very place where John was writing this gospel. He continues, he was, he was the man who said that it's impossible to step into the same river twice. He meant that all of life is in a state of change. Thus, although you step into the river once and step out and then step in a second time, by the time you've taken your second step into the water, the water has already flown by and this is now a different river. To Heraclitus and to the philosophers who would follow him, all of life seemed like that. And so they asked this important question, if this is true, how is it that everything exists, everything that exists is not in a perpetual state of chaos? How can we explain order in the world? And Heraclitus answered that life is not chaos because the changes that we see take place in life are not random changes. It is ordered change that we see. And this means there must be, are you ready? There must be a divine reason or logos. There must be a divine reason or logos that controls everything. What's he saying? He's saying, listen, the only explanation why we don't see utter chaos in the world, you got all these random processes going on, and the only explanation is that there is some kind of power, some kind of force. And it's where pantheists get it. It's where Star Wars gets it. The idea of there being this sovereign force out there and in here, it's pantheism. But the philosophers in wrestling with this, this was the conclusion they came to. There must be some force, and they called it the Logos that controls everything and keeps us from flying into chaos. There's even more to this. You see, Heraclitus came to the conclusion that the controlling principle in the universe was the Logos, that it was only a small step for him to begin applying it to other events of history and to the mental order that rules the minds of men. And so Boyce concludes, for Heraclitus then, the Logos became the very mind of God controlling this world and every man in it, the Logos, the Word. So it's important that we know that Heraclitus' Heraclitus's thoughts on the Logos were so foundational to Greek philosophy that for many centuries after him, the great philosophers that some of your students will be reading about this year believed what Heraclitus taught. Men like Plato, Socrates, um, Aristotle, the Stoics. All of the schools of Greek philosophical thought essentially 
bought into this idea that outside of us there is this controlling force called the logos. So you see, when the Greeks, the Greeks believed in this kind of logos word that created order in the world and governed all things, the Greek Stoics believed that the logos was both the divine pattern of the world, that is, its order, and the power that, it cre- that, that created it. And you might be thinking, wow, this is, this is pretty heady stuff. I mean, we're getting downright philosophical here. And that's true. And you might ask the question, what are the chances that your everyday normal individual, like a, like a fisherman, like James and John, or a guy like Peter, just normal, ordinary, poor folks, uneducated, what are the chances that they really would have understood this whole philosophical con- construct of the logos? That's a fair question. And let me ask you a question in response, okay? When you leave here today and you go home and you interact with your friends and your neighbors, your relatives, your coworkers this week, could you not go to almost any one of them, even the lady at the drive-thru at Sonic, and could you not ask them, do you believe in evolution? And they would either say, yes, I do, or no, I don't. And you would say, well, tell me what you believe about evolution. And they would say, well, I don't know much, but listen, Here's how it worked. There are billions and billions and billions and billions and billions of years ago, there was this puddle and there was these little single-celled organisms that crawled out of the puddle. They became a monkey, became, you know, a truck driver, became, um, <laughs> no offense to anybody, I'm just seeing if you're awake. Um, but here's my point. You're all laughing because you know the theory you know the philosophical ideas of evolution. How do you know it? How do you know that? Did you read any books on it? Some of you will say, yeah, went to college. It's all they teach. Absolutely. Our whole culture is saturated in Darwin's theories and the theories that have come out of Darwin's theories. You don't have to be a philosopher to get that. You understand at least some of it. You may not be able to explain all of the details or know that eventually it gets you nowhere. But you know it. And what I'm suggesting to you is John knew it. And everybody knew it. This whole philosophy of the logos. I mean, everywhere you look. What hope do you have? That the whole thing's not just going to blow apart in a million different directions and fall into chaos. Answer, there's this force. We don't know what it is. We just call it the Word. The Word. It's amazing. But here's the thing about the philosophers. You think of Socrates, Aristotle, Plato... Think of Heraclitus, these guys. You know what none of them taught about the Logos? None of them postulated that the Logos was personal. Nobody ever dared to postulate that the Logos had become a man. But John does. In the beginning was... The Logos. 
And the Logos was with God. And the Logos was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has not come into being in, what's the next word? Are you following me? Verse 4, in him. A personal pronoun. In him was life. And the life was a light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness does not comprehend it. Look at verse 14. And the word became flesh. This was radical. This was way radical. Because everybody would have been tracking with him fine all the way up until he got to verse 4 and used a personal pronoun. And now he's saying, it's a person? And he became a man? Prove it. John said, I will. It's going to take me chapters. That's what John is all about. No philosopher ever suggested that the Logos would be personal or become a man. This is what John is suggesting. He's saying that which created the universe, that which sustains it all and keeps it all from chaos, keeps it brought in order, is none other than this man, the man, Jesus Christ. And everything that I've written in this book, I've written so that by believing in him, you would find life in his name. Because apart from him, there's only judgment. Now that's amazing, beloved. If he's right, it's more than amazing. It's glorious. Now let's take the remainder of our time together and think about the remainder of verses 1 and 2 and 3. Because there are no throwaway words here. There isn't any filler, verbally speaking, here. And even with my final 15 minutes or so, uh, I, I can't talk about every word, but there are words here that look like filler words, and they're not. Watch this. In the beginning, okay, track with me. This is, this is, and by this I mean you all are, are more a sleepier group than the first service. So try to track with me here. <laughs> In the beginning, what's the next word? Was. Was. You're just going to fly right on by that. <laughs> and me too. Why wouldn't I? Was. Do you know John chose that word very carefully? In English, there aren't any other options. In Greek, there is. John chose a word very carefully here, and, and it is the, um, the, imperfect, the imperfect verb, a me, which means to be. And it is translated variously throughout the New Testament. But here it suggests, in the imperfect tense, it suggests the eternal pre-existence of the Lagos, the Word. In the beginning, eternally existed, was. 
the word. And you know what? Everybody reading that would have said, that's right. That's right. We know that. Everybody knows that. Believer, unbeliever, Jew, Gentile, male, female, slave, free, everybody believes that. But if you're talking about a personal being, that is amazing. At the beginning of creation, the Lagos already was eternally existent forever. So when God said his first creative words, let there be light, the word already existed everlastingly. In the beginning was eternally the word. But let's go on. And by the way, he repeats, he repeated um, using this word throughout the prologue. John says this, in the beginning was eternally the word, and the word was eternally with God. And watch this, and the word was everlastingly God. God. And at that point, John veers from all of the philosophers who had gone before him. God. And so, whoever the Word is, we know from the start, he is eternally preexistent. Which is why, by the way, John will later record for us Jesus telling the Pharisees in John chapter 8, he says, before Abraham was, I am same word, was, I am. It's the same word in Greek. I am, I am what? I am everlastingly the word of God. I am everlastingly the son of man. I am everlastingly the Christ. Let's look at another word. Verse 1, John says, the word was everlastingly. What's the next word? Don't skip anything. And the word was with. With. This is an interesting word, but you're going to have to dive into some grammar to get there. And I'm not going to do that with you this morning. You're already sleepy enough. (laughs) But Robert W. Cook in his Theology of John explains this that the word for with here carries the idea of two personal beings facing one another and engaging in intelligent discourse. This isn't, you know, your dad and my dad went to different schools together. (laughs) You are sleepy. Um, This isn't, I've got a picture of my wife with John MacArthur. And the really interesting story about, a really interesting detail about that picture, Jane was there, remember that, Jane? And John MacArthur was coming down the aisle, and he was signing autographs. And my wife was on the edge of the aisle. And I saw John MacArthur standing behind, and I said, honey, look here. And I snapped her picture, and there's a picture of her and John MacArthur, and neither one of them knew that the other was there. <laughs> Were they with each other? Well, 
loosely speaking. It's not the way it was with God. Not the way it was with the Word. Two personal beings faced facing one another and engaging in intelligent discourse. Probably the better way of translating this word here is the phrase face to face. Face to face. The logos was with God in the sense that he was face to face with God for eternity. In other words, this is another way of saying that it was God the Father and God the Son The Logos and the Ancient of Days and the Holy Spirit enjoying perfect fellowship with one another, watch this, for all eternity before God said, let there be light. And so let's read the text again. In the beginning was eternally the Word. And the Word was was eternally face to face with God. And the word was eternally God. Beloved, regardless of what any cult will try to tell you about these verses, there is no other text in the Bible that reveals more clearly or profoundly the Trinitarian nature of God. The Holy Spirit's not mentioned yet. He will be. It couldn't be any clearer that John is telling us that Jesus existed eternally as the second person of the Trinity with the Father in deep, intimate fellowship before the creation of all things they lived, face to face with one another. But there's more. John says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And what the Jehovah's Witnesses will tell you, and maybe the Mormons too will tell you, that that's not really what it says. And what I'm wanting you to see is you throw the word a God in here, and it, and it, it doesn't make sense with any of this. You look up any Greek grammar, and they're going to they're gonna show you. The definite article is inappropriately placed here. The indefinite article was inappropriately placed in their their Bible. John couldn't make this any clearer. Here's what the text actually reads. If you just read it in the Greek, in, in our version it says, and the word was God. You know what it says in the Greek? And God was the word I mean, you can come at this three or four or five different ways in this text if you know the original language. And the Jehovah's Witnesses' insertion of a God, it's not only ridiculous, it is ridiculous because it is contrary to every other word that John uses. But you know what? I'm, I'm not here this morning to debunk that heresy or any other. I want you to see what John wanted you to see. That Jesus, whom you claim as your Savior, is in fact the Word who is eternally 
God. And then in case he had not adequately declared Jesus' deity, he continues by saying this, verse 3, all things were created by him, the Logos. And apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. Now, you need to get this. Again, the cults will come and they'll say, Jesus wasn't God, he was the supreme created being. Can't be. It can't be. I mean, take their Bible out of their hand, flip it around, and read it. Adding a God rather than just God doesn't dispel the rest of the text. All things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. So here's the thing. If anything that you think, think about or anything that you see or feel or interact with, if it came into being, it came into being through Christ. Which means the Christ, the Word, the second person of the Trinity, the first and the third as well, did not come into being. He's saying, are you saying they don't exist? No, 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 track with me. There was never a time when they were not. Everything that has come into being, had a beginning, is not the Word. And the Word is Christ. The Word is God. Think about this, beloved. Let your mind be stretched to its furthest extremity. The Logos, who is none other than Jesus Christ, never came into being. Why? Because apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. Are we in the deep end yet? I mean, none of us touch bottom when we get to this stuff. We are way into the deep end. Oh, the glory of the depths of God. And the beauty of John is he says it in such simple language. This, beloved, is the clearest, most direct declaration of the deity of Christ to be found anywhere in Scripture. And there are other glorious places. Colossians chapter 1, my favorite. But nothing's more clearer than this. So why should you care? Why should you care that Jesus was God? Why should you care that the word is none other than Jesus Christ, eternal, face-to-face, -face, with God forever, became flesh, set up his house with us, and died for us? Why should we, why should we care about this? Why, why should it be important to us? Well, first... It tells us something. It, it tells us that, that we can know God. God is not some impersonal logos out there, some force that we can tap into or learn to tap into or some people can and some people can't. God is someone, we don't take a de deistic view here where God is so transcendent and out there 
that he never interacts with his people, therefore no miracles, no personal relationship, none of that stuff. No, he is the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. You want to know God? You want to know God? Find out everything you can about Jesus, and you'll know God. You say, well, don't we all worship the same God? No. No. The Apostle Peter makes it clear. God is the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. If your God is not the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, then he is not God. You can know God. And how do you know God? You know God through Jesus Christ. Turn with me. One last, one last passage. And this is John chapter 14. Jesus keeps telling his men he's leaving them, and they're really sad about that. They're really kind of upset. And they don't understand it. And, and they, they weren't intended to understand it. Yet God was giving them revelation bit by bit, piece by piece. Even after the resurrection, they didn't understand it all. They, when he appeared, he said, are, they said, are you going to set up your kingdom now? And they still didn't get it. God was giving them what we call progressive revelation that came to them increment by increment, word upon word, precept upon precept. So here are the disciples. They, they hear Jesus saying that he's leaving. They don't, they don't understand why. And Jesus says something profound here about knowing God. And my premise here is simply this, that if you want to know God, all you've got to know is Jesus. And here's why. Here's just one example of why. Start with verse 1, John chapter 14. Jesus knows that they're troubled in their souls because of what he's been telling them, that he's leaving. And he says, do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. And if I prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And you know the way where I am going. And notice Thomas here. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know the way. We do not know where you are going. And, and how do we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you know him and have seen him. That's a remarkable statement. And Philip says to him, Lord, show us the Father and that'll be enough. And Jesus said, have I been with you so long and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Otherwise, believe because of the works themselves. Philip, have you been with me so long? 
And you think you don't know God? To know me is to know God. And then look at John chapter 17. Do you have a definition of eternal life? Do you know what the definition of eternal life is? I mean, the biblical definition of eternal life. Watch this. John 17, this is Jesus' high priestly prayer. Walking toward the garden where he would be arrested. He stops in the middle of their walk through the dark and he looks up at the, at the sky and he says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you even as you gave him authority over all flesh so that all whom you have given him, he may, he may give eternal life. Verse 3, and this is eternal life. Ready for the definition? That they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. That's eternal life, to know God in Christ. You want to know God? Study Jesus. Read Jesus. And get to know everything you can about Jesus. And the only place you can do that is through his word. That's why this should be important to you. Second, why should the deity of Christ be important to you? Because Jesus is God. His death on the cross was really significant. And it wouldn't have been if he hadn't been God. Uh, not as significant. If he had only been a man, he could have only paid for his own sins, and he didn't have any because he was God. But because he didn't have any sins, and he was God, when he died, his death was a sufficient sacrifice to bring forgiveness to our sins. And so the author of Hebrews can write, for by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Beloved, because Jesus is God, listen, because Jesus is God, and this is the only reason, because Jesus is God, all of your sin can be forgiven. All of it. And some of you hearing my voice right now, you, you, you're thinking, Pastor Dan, you don't know how, how horrible my sin is. I've known people who have killed other people. I know people who have killed other people. And they struggle. You don't know how bad my sin is. No, you're right. I don't. But what that statement tells me is you have no idea how glorious Christ is. There is no sin so deep that Christ is not deeper still. There is no sin that his sufficient death cannot bring forgiveness for. You can be reconciled to God regardless of what you've done. Moses killed a man. Paul, the great apostle, was an accomplice to killing a man. Matthew was a tax collector. Simon was a zealot. It was a technical term. It didn't mean he was high energy, like Brent. <laughs> It meant that he was part of this, this vigilante group that was out killing Romans. And he became one of the disciples. All of your sin can be forgiven. Number three, the reason the deity of Christ should be important to you is because it will inform your worship. You know, we've been trying to learn together how to engage in worship-based prayer more so than um, need-based prayer. Learn how to worship. 
So we turn to the Lord's Prayer. Lord, teach us to worship, teach us to pray. And he says, pray like this, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Okay, you say that the first few times, and it's glorious. But God created you in such a way that you become quickly dissatisfied with truth that you know. But here's the glorious thing. God is an eternal well of truth. There's, there's no limit to what you can discover about him. I had a brother in between sessions in, uh, during Sunday school, after Sunday school this morning, came to me in a scientific mind, and he was telling me about light and the things they're discovering about light. And we were just glorying in the fact that because God is the creator of all things, every time we discover something new, we discover something new about God. And it's a glorious thing. This will inform your worship to know what the word is now. The word and that he is eternal and he is everlasting before the creation and was actually the creator. Oh my, you could take our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, to new heights because you know more of your Savior. But here's the most important for question for you this morning and for me. Who do you say Jesus is? It's the most important question you will ever answer. It is the question that will give meaning to your life. You answer it wrong and you got chaos because you're going to live by your own devices or someone else's. Who is Jesus Christ? You remember when Jesus rode into the city of Jerusalem on a donkey? On what we call Palm Sunday, the people all turned to one another and said, Who is this? And remember the disciples, they asked the same question when Jesus quieted the storm with a word, peace, be still. And they asked, who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? King Herod asked this question. He said, I beheaded John. Who then is this that I hear such things about? Who is this guy? When Jesus forgave the sins of the paralytic, the scribes and the Pharisees asked, them, asked themselves, who is this fellow who speaks blasphemy? Who can for sin, for, forgive sins but God alone? That's a great question. And they answered it wrong. They were, they were so close. They had put the pieces together and then they said, that can't be true. And one time Jesus even confronted his own disciples with this question, who do you say that I am? Remember what Peter answered? You are the Christ, the son of the living God. How will you answer that question? I suspect that there are some hearing my voice today who have not yet answered that question. And if you're one of them, I just want to say that the most important question you will ever answer is this one. You must answer it. You will answer it. And so my exhortation to you is don't take this lightly. Everything hangs on who you believe Jesus is. And I believe if you earnestly seek him, he will indeed reveal himself to you. And he will reveal himself to you in the person of Jesus Christ through his word. He is the eternal Logos. He is the Word made flesh. He is our only God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Beloved, the sinner's great hope and only hope 
is that Jesus Christ was not just a man, but he's eternally, immutably God. God. He's God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for revealing yourself in these ways. And I confess, Father, too often when I read your word, I skim by the words and the phrases that could crack open the glories of who you are. Oh, Father, help us now as you've revealed these things to us from your word to not take them lightly or not just to be fed intellectually, but rather, Father, change us by it. Make us more like Christ. Help us, Father, to see our sin more clearly and our need for you, our dependence upon you more clearly so that we would worship you and obey you and live for you and love Christ more than we ever have before. Lord, we love you and we praise you for being so kind to us as to give us a book to reveal yourself so that we can know God. And all of it through Jesus Christ. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.